This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hi there, it's Erica. I am so excited this week to share a special bonus episode with you. A few weeks ago, you might have heard Dr. Christopher Labos talking about weight bias in healthcare. Today, we're sharing an episode of his podcast, The Body of Evidence. In this episode, Labos and his co-host, Jonathan Jerry, interviewed Dr. Gail Sinatra and Dr. Barbara Hoffer about their book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. We hope you enjoy it. It's a show about medicine with 20% more fiber. The guy you just heard is Dr. Christopher Labos. And the other guy is Jonathan Jarry. I'm a doctor, but he's not. Sorry that I did biomedical research instead. Jeez. And we're going to look at the evidence behind medical topics. And the show is. Wait, called... wait, wait. No, I, I want to say it. I want to say it. No, no, I want to say it. I'm I want to say it. I want to say it. I came up with it. It's the body, the of... body of evidence. It's the body of evidence. You totally stole that from Madonna. We are joined by Gail Sinatra, PhD, and Barbara Hoffer, PhD, the authors of the book Science Denial. Dr. Sinatra is the Stephen H. Crocker Chair and Professor of Psychology and Education at the Rossi School of Education at the University of Southern California, and she heads the Motivated Change Research Lab at USC. Dr. Hoffer is a professor of psychology emerita at Middlebury College. They are both fellows of the American Psychological Association. Welcome to the Body of Evidence. Thank you for inviting us. We're delighted to be here. You wrote a book uh, that is at once topical and timeless uh, because it deals with why some people doubt or even deny scientific facts. And it's a problem that is very old, uh, but it's also one that has been bubbling over these past few years. So I, I guess my first question is, what was the impetus behind writing a book, you know, the two of you together about this topic and, and why now? Well, thanks for asking. I think uh, Gail and I have been working together for 20 plus years. We've known each other a long time through various professional associations, and we have been doing similar lines of research. And so we began to collaborate some years ago and wrote a few peer-reviewed articles on this topic. But then we began to realize that we wanted to reach out to a broader public, that just speaking to our peers and other psychologists wasn't enough. We felt like we had a message we wanted to speak about more broadly. So we began working on the book. And little did we know at the time we were doing that, this was pre-COVID, that we would be in a situation that would be so dramatic in terms of science denial, so extreme, that there would be people denying to the grave, people who were hooked up to ventilators in the U.S. and claiming that it had to be a hoax, they must have something else, mm -hmm. or only acknowledging the, the disease at the point that relatives begin to die from it. So it's been startling to realize how dramatic the problem has become, so much more so than when we began just a few years ago. 
that it is, um, we're really grateful that we were able to get this book out at the time that we have. Because you actually had to edit some portions of the book to to acknowledge the COVID situation, the, the COVID pandemic, because you had, right. yeah, because I think in the book you said you had submitted, I think, the first draft before yes. COVID actually <laughs> happened. We, you know, we submitted it February 25th, 2020. Ooh, wow. And, and then the, <laughs> there was a, a massive delay on the final peer review. We'd had peer review of the proposal. Now we had peer review of the book because everybody was scrambling to try to figure out how to teach on Zoom or whatever they were doing. So it was delayed and we were annoyed. And then we were relieved because it allowed us to go back in and punch it up with all the vivid examples that existed above and beyond anything we'd imagined in our first writing. You used the phrase science denial, and of course, that's a, that's the title of the book. How do you define science denial? Well, we talk about it as a belief-based stance, you know, a refusal to accept scientific evidence. And at the same time, we also talk in the book about an array of responses to science other than acceptance. So we look also at doubt, at resistance, and we try to make it quite clear that this isn't an us and them issue, that there are many ways based on our cognitive psychology that all of us can be resistant to certain aspects of science. Gail, you want to add to that? I'm saying too much here. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. <laughs> Uh, so, so when we have to make decisions about complex scientific topics, and we've seen it with vaccination, for mm -hmm. example, but also with global warming, uh, whether we're going to eat genetically engineered food or not, what do we rely on to make those decisions? Because I think a lot of people may see themselves as these purely rational agents. They just look at the facts, and that's how they make their decisions. But of course, that is not the full portrait of, of how we go about making these decisions on these complex issues. No, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, we wish everyone uh, was making rational decisions and weighing all the evidence before they decided uh, whether to get vaccinated or whether to wear a mask. But unfortunately, there's a lot of things that enter into that decision-making decision process, things like your identity group and you know, people that are uh, your friends who share your values, what kinds of decisions are they making? Um, your emotions, how strongly do you feel about the issue? Um, what are your sources of evidence in, in terms of uh, expertise? Who, who is it that you trust? Um, so we, in the book, discuss a variety of issues taking into account uh, that contribute to decisions. And sometimes, of course, these are not the best ways to judge scientific evidence. You you refer to Lee McIntyre, uh, who's a philosopher of science and, and who talks about having a scientific attitude, which which broadly means to you know to be open to seek new evidence, to be willing to change your mind. You were mentioning COVID and how you had to sort of rewrite parts of your book because of COVID and provide better examples. Uh, have you seen a lot of that scientific attitude during the pandemic from non-scientists uh, or, or has it been what I mean what has been the situation I guess in, in the United States with with regards to the to having a scientific attitude during the pandemic I think you can I, I was going to say I think you can summarize that in two words doubling down <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I wouldn't want to paint the entire country with that brush mm -hmm. I think there are many people who have been steeped in a scientific attitude. And I, and I want to make clear that Lee McIntyre and Gail and I don't talk about a scientific attitude as something that scientists have. It's something that all schools can teach and not just in science classes. 
I certainly have been teaching it in psychology classes for years. What does it mean to prefer evidence? What does it mean to value evidence? What does it mean to be open to changing your mind in light of new evidence? I mean, those are critical thinking skills that we want all students to learn at every level. It should start really young that we're teaching those sorts of things. And so I think there are uh, many people in the US and elsewhere who do have a scientific attitude. And they also have an appreciation for some of the tenets of science and other people do not. So for example, we know that a novel coronavirus is exactly that. It was novel, we didn't know anything about it. Scientists had to begin to figure it out, but that perplexed many people. They thought this was flip-flopping when scientists said, Uh, We want you to wash your groceries when you bring them in the house. And then two months later, well, we've now figured out it's not fomites, it's respiratory. So now we want you to wear masks. And there were people not understanding science who thought scientists don't know what they're talking about. So it's problematic, uh, both in the scientific attitude and the understanding of the nature of science, that many people have not had adequate schooling to really grasp that. It also was made worse by the politicization of the coronavirus. Um, We haven't done a good enough job in the United States, as Barbara mentioned, teaching the nature of science and having people appreciate um, that evidence changes and science changes with new evidence. And that's its strength, not a weakness. (laughs) But we also did a terrible job of politicizing the coronavirus. um, and, And we see that countries who did less of that did better in terms of vaccine and other public health measures uptake. So it was a double whammy there, poor understanding of the nature of science itself and then the politicization of it so that people were making decisions not based on the evidence as much as based on their identity groups. Have you uh, have you seen this kind of politicization on scientific issues before? I mean, I, I'm thinking about climate yes. change. <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, evolution versus creationism to, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But have, have you had you seen this kind of politicization to that to that degree before the pandemic, I think you need to start watching the news, Jonathan. I'm just saying. What? This well, is a, it's an interview because yeah. I need to be asking questions <laughs> here, <laughs> even if I think I know what the answers are. One of, one of the ways in which uh, Gail and I uh, became acquainted with each other is we were both doing research on students' beliefs about evolution mm-hmm. and whether they accepted basic theory of evolution or whether they were resistant to it and why, and that. Uh, was very fascinating to study during a time that it had become quite politicized, that there were many Southern states in particular that were arguing that intelligent design and creationism should be taught alongside um, evolution, that these were simply, quote, theories, and you might as well teach all the theories. (laughs) Yeah, much much like gravity is just a theory. Yeah, exactly. A lack of understanding about what a theory is. You know, they and I, I did research on this, and even really bright college students seem to have this notion that a theory is in its colloquial meaning something that's untested rather than understanding. And one study I did, only 7% of college students understood what theory meant in regard to the theory of evolution. Hmm. They just see it as a hunch or an idea or something untested. And this playbook was taken up in the climate denial movement. Yeah. You know, we're big fans of um, Naomi Oreskes and her colleagues work on merchants of doubt. Yeah. In other words, that this kind of doubt Doubting scientific findings has been prevalent, and there's a playbook that was created back, at least with uh, resistance to to tobacco industry, where tobacco was known to be causing cancer long before we were warned about it in the U.S. with those those labels, and that whole propaganda machine was absolutely employed for evolution 
education resistance and then aptly applied quite well to climate change denialism. So, you know, one of the things that we want to make clear in our book is, you know, there's not, as Barbara mentioned, two types of people, you know, acceptors of science and deniers of science. Uh, There are people who have been misled and have fallen for that misleading information, um, but it's been prevalently portrayed on their social media and on some mainstream news outlets and people are unfortunately unable to separate the scientific evidence from uh, the merchants of doubts uh, arguments. So this is you know, this, this idea about manufacturing doubt. If you can get people to doubt, you're, you, you have this ability to put a wedge in there and not have them worry about the issue quite so much. So people who doubt climate change or who doubted the, the link uh, between tobacco and cancer, they weren't so worried about it. They, and they were not as wild about solutions that were being generated. And the same PR firm that did the tobacco campaigns did the same with, for Exxon. I mean, they, it really is, as Gail said, the same playbook, figuring out how to manufacture doubt, how to get people to not accept scientific knowledge. And the, the studies that come out from the Yale Climate Change people from Pew Research Center, all the people that are doing research on climate change are pretty shocking in terms of how much the average person in the U.S. thinks that there is not only in their minds doubt about climate change and whether it's anthropogenic or, but also they don't think scientists know. They think scientists doubt it. I mean, Hmm. these people have worked hard to get people to somehow think that this is not understood with the clarity that it is. Do you think the same playbook was applied in COVID or did the COVID denialism that we saw arise from different things altogether? I think it was somewhat different because um, who has portrayed um, these mechanisms of doubt before is often corporations Uh, who have a vested interest in selling tobacco or in um, selling fossil fuels. But what we saw with COVID, it was politicized by political leaders. Um, Even the U.S. president at the time politicized it quite dramatically. And I think that was a very different um, source of doubt that was created. And we saw in the United States the, you know, direct conflict at some of the press conferences between political statements. And then Dr. Fauci would get up and make this scientific statement. And this is very confusing for people. Yeah, I think it was used much more to just create wedges between people with different political ideologies. And that that is quite disturbing. It's interesting that you mentioned doubt and emergence of doubt and how doubt can be weaponized uh, to uh, to make people believe that a well-established scientific theory is actually a lot more uh, uncertain than it is because coming from the, the, the skeptical world, uh, doubt has often been propped up as a good thing that if you, if you want to be a good skeptic, um, you should doubt everything. But to me, it was very eye-opening during the pandemic to see that actually that can lead you down the road to grand conspiracy theories. Like if you're not well equipped to 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 scrutinize this doubt and to look for good information, you end up doubting everything and thus believing the wackiest conspiracy theories. 
It's a, it's a really good point. We try in the book to distinguish between doubt and skepticism. Mm -hmm. So skepticism has always been a healthy part of science. And I think we want to encourage people to have a healthy dose of skepticism, but not to be fully doubting everything either. That's problematic. But to try to be skeptical, say, of single studies that don't yet have enough corroboration to be believed or information that comes from erroneous sources or whatever, you want to be skeptical. And we know that scientists are have a healthy skepticism about the research that they do. They mm -hmm. know that it has to be replicated. They know that they have to seek out other explanations for their data, et cetera. We also talk about consensus science and, you know, that as you should be doubtful of one one-off study with a low sample size, consensus science, as we see in the IPCC report, uh, that's the kind of science we think we should understand uh, is much more um, resistant to skepticism. You should look at that and see the wealth of evidence there and be confident when there is so much support uh, of a consensus viewpoint. Have you all heard of the term or the concept of just asking questions? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Chris, Chris is so happy because a month ago he learned about the acronym. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I'm just asking a question. Yeah. Have you, heard, yeah. have you heard how the acronym is referred to? Well, no. yes. Jonathan, tell them. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's referred to as jacking off, right? So J-A-Q, yeah. uh, yeah. I'm just asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that the science of COVID is completely untrustworthy. Yeah. I'm just asking questions yeah. to my audience. And, I, and I, I'm asking these questions to a guest who's a COVID contrarian who is who was telling me that, yeah, we should be very, very skeptical of COVID science. I'm just asking yeah. questions. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's this, in the same category as doing my own research. Yeah. I'm just doing my own research. It's it's like you you really can't do your own vaccine safety research unless you happen to be an infectious disease specialist and and the same thing if if it's it's just looking for reasons to doubt and to spread doubt. And, and it's it's sad in a way that we have to say this because it may sound like we're being paternalizing, like we're saying, oh, you, you couldn't possibly understand this stuff. You have to just take experts at their word. But at the same time, you do require, as you point out, you, you require a certain dose of, of intellectual humility. If, if I were, my background is in molecular biology, if I were to read a paper about quantum physics, I'm so outside of this, of my yeah. field that I have no idea what it means or if, or if these results are, are valid in, in any way. And I have the intellectual humility to realize that. And so the same thing goes for, for vaccine science, right? But you, you, know, you also have an advantage as a scientist, even if you can't understand the science in different fields, you have the ability to understand what expertise looks like in those other fields right. and what kind of expertise to trust. And you probably have some reliance on scientific expertise. What we have found in recent years is trust and expertise has been eroded. And I think that's really problematic. That's something that concerns us a lot. The degree to which, again, because COVID was politicized, we began to see people doubting genuine expertise. So you wrote something interesting about that in the book, and I want to quote this. You said, when individuals do assess a source on the web, they are likely to consider three components as part of their trustworthiness judgments, according to researchers. There's expertise, there's benevolence, and there's integrity. Can you expand yeah. on this? Yeah, so you know, we're looking at whether a person can assess what kind of expert is this? Is this expertise that I trust? 
do they have good intentions? Is there something that, um, is there somebody paying them to, to make this claim? You know, what's behind this? Uh, are, do they have integrity? Are they a person, are they an expert that can be trusted because we know more about their claims here? Uh, they, these are really critical pieces, but it's not as though everybody does that. What we know is that primarily people are relying on system one thinking. You know, what, what Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize psychologist, talked about is system one versus system two thinking. With system one, you're just uh, having a quick intuitive response. Oh, that sounds familiar. I like it. My friends believe it, whatever. I'm going to forward it. I'm going to retweet it. Mm-hmm. With system two thinking, you slow down, you're analytical, you stop to think, is this person benevolent? Do they have integrity? What is the expertise? And to assess all of that. But system two is, is, is energy intensive and it's slow and we don't like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's not as though we would ever believe that anybody would use it all the time. That's not plausible. Uh, what we do know is that we need to be trained to have what psychologists call conditional knowledge, knowing when. When do you employ that? When does it make a difference? If somebody's recommending a Thai restaurant to me online, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time checking it all out, maybe a little bit. But if they're telling me I should take ivermectin to cure COVID, I think I better slow down and figure out if warm medicine is really the right way to go. Mm -hmm. But it's become harder and harder to evaluate information online. My colleague Doug Lombardi and I have written about steps that we think individuals should take when they're evaluating scientific information online. And it takes several steps. You've got to maybe do some lateral reading, um, which is the way fact checkers read information, open up another window, try to figure out the expertise of that person, whether they're trying to sell you something. And, you know, these steps are are easy to take once you've learned them and are quick to take uh, once you've learned them. But they take some practice to engage with them and it does take that effortful thinking of system two to stop and say, wait a minute, you know, is this, you know, study worth sharing? Should I, should I see who paid for the research here? Uh, those kinds of steps are things people don't know to do, but we can teach them to do them. As, as I said before, I, mean, I think we could all um, learn to, to slow down on social media and very few people are going to die from you not sharing a story that you haven't vetted, right? So it, it may be better sometimes not to share something because you haven't had time to look into it than to share this and it turns out to be misinformation. Well, yeah, and one of the things we want to make clear is that the burden of this is not only on the individual. We need big tech to step up and make more of that possible. Mm -hmm. And a a good example is when a year ago, Twitter started putting out a little notice that you'd get if you tried to to share something you had yet to open, you got a quick response that said, would you like to read it first? Mm -hmm. And we've we've talked to a number of people who found that refreshing and sobering at the same time, like, whoa, I was gonna share that without having having even opened it. How strange is that? I read half the headline and it was fine to me, so I was gonna share this. And I I think we need to see more of that. We need to figure out what are the the big fixes like that that don't just rely on individuals turning on system two. It's a prompt. 
I mean, really, it's a prompt to turn on system two. That's perfectly appropriate. Um, in the book, you write about refutation texts uh, to address potential misconceptions that, for example, students may have. I think this is very useful for, well, for us science communicators, but also for anybody who has friends and relatives on, on Facebook and, and they want to maybe address um, a bit of mis- misconception or misinformation that is out there. Can you expand on those? How do you think a good refutation text should be structured? Sure. Um, Refutation texts are one way we've used to debunk misinformation. And I would also refer your listeners to the debunking handbook, Mm -hmm. um, which I was uh, a a small co-author of. There's quite a few authors, but uh, Lewandowski is the main author. And that gives you several strategies for debunking. So one is refutations where you state a commonly held misconception. You specifically state that it isn't correct, but then the key is you explain the correct scientific information. And our research shows that this can be an effective strategy for getting people to understand um, what they misunderstood. Uh, Additional strategies people have tried are um, something called pre-bunking. So... This is when you almost inoculate people against misinformation they're likely to hear. And and that is a new strategy that people have tried. But it's really important to let people know what's incorrect and why it's incorrect and to provide sufficient explanations so they can see the rationale for why that information that you're sharing is scientifically accurate. Yeah, I think what can be very powerful is is because the brain abhors a vacuum is to explain to people uh, why that bit of misinformation uh, doesn't work, why it's wrong, and how we know what the real answer is. So that you're again, you're not just just being paternalistic and saying no, that's wrong. This is what's true, but you're explaining it, and so the so the person can go, oh, I get it now. Great, and I think that that's more powerful than just saying no, no. Trust me, I'm the scientist here. Well, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of people that change their mind right after you told them they were wrong. (laughs) And so that's not usually the best way to go about it is, no, you're just wrong. You really do have to explain, you know, where the correct information lies and and exactly what you said, how we know that that's correct. So we have found this to be an effective strategy. Some people worry about debunking strategies because of backfire effects where, Perhaps people will double down on their original conception, but um, we think if you provide the strong enough explanation of the scientific information, that really ameliorates that debunking effect. And in the debunking handbook, um, the evidence is presented in there about effective techniques, and they they note that debunk that uh, backfire effects are not really. Uh, that concerning. I was, I was going to ask you about that because I have my doubts that the backfire effect is actually that real or, you know, m- maybe fairly minimal. I'm not, I, I wasn't, I'm not entirely convinced it's true. I was curious, curious what you two thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. There evidence presented in that debunking handbook summarizes the research on, on the backfire effect. We've done some research in our own group about it and you're right. It is pretty minimal and it's, uh, you know, really worth the effort because there's way more people who are convinced by the explanation provided for the correct answer than than those who do double down on the original um, misinformation. So it's it's worth it, especially in these cases where we're talking about getting a vaccine or wearing a mask and these life saving measures. It's definitely worth it 
to um, to try to debunk information carefully. If I remember correctly, the backfire effect basically came about in a fairly contrived experiment yeah. and was very um, made a big splash in the news. And I, I remember being very scared about this. And then when other groups tried to replicate these findings and when the original authors uh, participated in a replication of their findings, they realized that either the effect wasn't real or it was very, very small. So it wasn't uh, this big thing that we all needed to be concerned about. Yeah. Well, what we have found it in our research, but as you mentioned, it's a smaller effect. I think maybe 14% of our sample backfired. But when we Mm. drilled down into who are these people who backfired, it's back to those original uh, factors I mentioned at the beginning that lead people to be skeptical of science and um, things like uh, identity groups and political affiliation, motivated reasoning, emotions. When you drill down into these different characteristics, those people who are really deeply wedded to their original position for one of those reasons, they they can sometimes double down on the original conception. But you know, Barbara and I like to talk about the movable middle, mm-hmm. you know, rather than looking at just the extreme groups who are very hard to convince of anything, look at the fact that really the majority of people who are undecided about whether to get vaccinated or wear a mask were really um, people who may have had legitimate questions and concerns they hadn't gotten answered yet. And those people are persuadable and those people really um, deserve their questions to be answered and can be responsive to the correct information when explained to them. I mean, I, I think we've decided that we're probably not going to go to the flat earth convention and try to convince <laughs> those people. Um, and, you know, it's, it, that just doesn't seem worth it to me. But I think there are other issues that are really critical, climate change being the top of the list right now, probably. Mm-hmm. And I I think about conversations I've had with individuals that have been illuminating in terms of what might be effective. So I gave a public talk in February 2020, right before the pandemic, last big public talk. And there was a man at the end who said, "I'd, I'd really like to talk to you. And he sent me an email and said, I think I'm one of those people you talked about. I don't believe in climate change. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's human caused, et cetera. Would you have coffee with me? Hmm. And it was a, a, a really nice opportunity to be able to talk about the things that are to use the things that Gail and I had written about in the book. And one of them in terms of social identity is thinking about the fact that we are all multifaceted. It's not as though we have one and only one identity, say our political party or whatever that might be. But in this case, this individual and I had um, an interesting conversation. And what I realized was that we were both grandparents. And so I was able to say, well, do you worry about leaving this planet to your grandchildren? And he melted and started talking about the worries that he did have. And suddenly we got to a place where I understood that he was afraid of climate change and that he was worried about economic consequences. He really couldn't see how we were going to find our way out of this. Well, the whole conversation changed at that point. So I think what we all need to realize is that that we, we can't just write people off. We, we have to think about why do they think what they do? How do we really listen with compassion and understanding and try to figure out why they think that? And I think the other thing that has struck me lately is I'm trying to help people think about who wants you to believe that and why? Who benefits from you believing that? Hmm. <laughs> who might have 
manipulated a situation to get people to think that. And I think that's what's going in the U.S. on a number of issues. Uh, sorry, the, the point you bring up is so important because um, it requires patience, right? To be, yeah. to be able to put aside your, your immediate feelings of anger toward this other person, of, of sort of dehumanizing them because of, of yeah. what they believe. And patients can be in such short supply during the pandemic. How do, do you have any, tr any tricks on how to have these careful, considerate, empathetic conversations with people who believe things that aren't true? Well, I think the first thing you said is the most important, the empathy. Um, there, it is so frustrating to hear people who make statements that you just know are, are false. But, you know, as Barbara said, they got that idea somewhere. And, you know, being stupid is a very small number of reasons, very small uh, proportion of people who aren't getting something because they're just dumb. That isn't, that's not what it is. Often it's a misunderstanding based on misinformation that they've been fed. And if you can be empathetic to the fact that they have been led down some rabbit hole, misled by their social media groups or by some other kind of communication they're listening to, and listen to what their concerns are. As Barbara said, you can often find a point of connection. And once you have that point of connection, you will realize that there's really some more similarities between you that you can capitalize on to have an empathetic conversation. Once you go there, I think over time you can build back some trust because really trust is a big factor here. So not, not seeing them as dumb, but seeing them as essentially infected by viral misinformation. Well, and yes. there, there have been a lot of people commenting on the fact that it's a good thing we didn't have social media when we were trying to eradicate smallpox. <laughs> right, yeah. If you think about what social media has done to this landscape, it's just quite disturbing. And it isn't just social media, it's regular media as well, the ways in which things are have become so polarized. But the, the notion of echo chambers and filter bubbles and all the ways in which people get information fed back to them that are what they already believe and that's all they want to see. They don't want contradictory information. And the systems are designed to feed that to them. So uh, one of the things that the uh, Pew Charitable Test talks about is algorithmic literacy, that we need not just digital literacy, but we need people to understand how algorithms work. And I've been surprised in my teaching at how few undergraduates, for example, have any awareness at all of how those things are set up. Not that we really know, right. because these are proprietary uh, businesses so that we're not likely to know exactly how they work, but we need to know that they work and what they're doing in terms of echoing what we already think and feeding more of that to us. And again, we need to hold tech responsible for some of these, the ways in which this has become dysfunctional. Do you think people know that there are underlying reasons driving their beliefs? Because you give one of the examples in the book uh, with regard to climate change of, you know, the individual who works in an area where the coal mine is the only source of employment. And so this person is, you know, opposed to the climate change movement because shutting down the coal mine is going to put them out of work and cost them money. 
So do you think people are self-aware enough to realize that that's the thing that is driving their opposition? Or do you think that it's a subconscious thing that makes people that drives people into a camp without them fully acknowledging that their arguments are not scientific, but economic, for example? There's some of both. I was just in a science communication conference in Houston, and one of the uh, presenters was from Fort Worth. And he came up to me after one of the sessions and he said, you know, all my neighbors purport to be climate deniers. But then when I really talk with them, they know. Hmm. They know the climate is changing. They know that people are contributing to it. Um, They know what the causes are, but they don't want to give up their lifestyle. They don't want to make changes. They don't want to stop driving their trucks. They don't, there's things that they, about their lifestyle that they like. They don't like other people telling them what they can and can't do. And so they say they deny climate change, he said, but they really are just resisting having to make the changes in their lifestyle that they don't want to make. So that's one group for sure. And then I'm sure there's people, and we've seen it in our own research, that really don't understand it. Climate change mechanism is not that complicated to understand, the greenhouse effect, basically. And we've seen in our research that uh, very smart undergraduate students don't understand that. So it is both uh, a willful misunderstanding on some people's parts and a confusion about the science on others. Do you think that there is an epistemic threat right now? So a threat to how we come to knowledge, how we recognize knowledge, um, where facts are seen by many as just opinions. And so disagreements over important facts become you do you. Yeah, I, I, you're really on to something there. I think I think that's true. And this is what people have talked about as the post-truth society. Mm-hmm. Are we living in an era where where so many facts are disputed that many people just throw up their hands and think, ah, you know, how do we know what's true anymore? And that certainly works for authoritarian uh, governments to try to feed that because it puts it back into, well, just trust me and you don't have to worry about ferreting out what's true and what's accurate and all of that. Anything I say is true and anything else is fake. That is disconcerting, the ways in which the uh, epistemic trust has been eroded in and very deliberately, very cleverly. And psychologists talk about uh, stages of epistemic development. So there's you know, a crude way to think about it is that people typically start at some absolutist sort of level where they think that all of knowledge is black and white, it's, you know, it's true or it's not true, and uh, move to a period of multiplism where everything is up for grabs, it's all opinions. And it works for uh, authoritarian governments to have people in either one of those camps. But the third stage is one of evaluativism, where individuals are likely to want to evaluate evidence, want to figure out how to reconcile competing claims, and they have the means to do so. Unfortunately, in the U.S., I don't know the stats in Canada, but in the U.S., it is not the majority of adults who reach that level. Mm -hmm. How worried are you about this political polarization of science that we saw during the pandemic, especially in the United States? Do you think it's going to have ramifications on other important scientific issues? Can we can we uh, roll it back in a way? I mean, how, how worried are you? Well, I'm deeply concerned. We see with deadly consequences 
the misinformation and disinformation spread in the U.S. about the coronavirus led led to so many people unnecessarily um, dying. So obviously, it's a huge concern. And I think climate change is exactly like that, where there will be unnecessary uh, deaths. Uh, we have to try to adapt and try to mitigate as best we can. But if we can't get people to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it um, in a clear and level-headed manner, then we are going to continue to see uh, what we've seen in the U.S., whole towns in California being burnt to the ground, uh, areas that are in low-lying uh, being flooded and uh, erosion on our coastlines and all of those things are going to need a tremendous amount of cooperation between people of different parties. And just, just as the coronavirus never knew whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, uh, the changing climate doesn't care about your party affiliation either. You devote your last chapter to the urgent question of, of what do we do about science denial and, and science doubt and resistance. And obviously these things are going to be with us for the rest of humanity. But from a, from a harm reduction perspective, what can we do to ameliorate the situation? I vote Fleet of Mars. <laughs> That's the, the wealthy tech entrepreneur answer to this. That's Just, right. Let's go elsewhere. Yeah. Let's start all over and start make the same mistakes. Great reset. That's what we need. Well, I, I want to stay here <laughs> uh, on this earth. It's uh, quite a normally quite habitable place for humans. And uh, we can try to keep it that way as best as possible, given our current climatic changes. Yeah, in the book, we do make recommendations for individuals and for educators in K through 12 and higher ed, science communicators uh, like yourselves. And... Um, and scientists who want to communicate about their own work, um, and policymakers. And so we do try to give specific recommendations tailored to those groups in our book. And um, and we can go through a couple of suggestions for each of those types if you're interested. Sure. They're yeah. there for you. Uh, yeah, to... I'll, I'll start with science communicators since you two are in that camp. But one of the things that psychologists have discovered is that when uh, journalists try to present, quote, both sides of an argument that is fairly settled science, it undermines people's acceptance of the certainty of that information. And so they can create doubt again by claiming both sides. And we know the examples of this that were rife with in the, in the early days of climate change in that every reporter thought if they were going to interview a scientist who was going to talk about climate change and human causes, they had to interview somebody who didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And to make it look as though it was a 50-50 issue, and that's not good. The BBC about five or six years ago issued a policy that that was no longer permissible. Uh, the referee has spoken, they said. This would be like calling a football game and then saying, yeah, but I don't think that really ended that way. <laughs> do, you, do you have a stance on public debates where a, a fringe scientific view uh, or a clearly pseudoscientific view or conspiratorial view is platformed uh, on equal footing as, as the real science, as the consensus on it? Well, uh, yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Well, I, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but a, a couple years ago, I got interviewed on a science podcast 
where they were uh, very interested in flat earthers. And the woman said to me, well, you know, we have flat earth believers and we have round earth believers. And, and, <laughs> wow. And I just lost it in the interview, you know, just like that. No, no. We have flat earth believers and we have people who accept the science. Mm -hmm. And those are very, those are not commensurate views. And for to me, it was just journalistically irresponsible for somebody to communicate that to the public in that way. And it sounds 50-50, like it's a jump ball, like, oh, yeah. the Earth's either flat yeah. or it's round. Who knows? Who know? yeah. How could we possibly know this? And so that's back to that manufacturing doubt. You know, if you really present things as a 50-50 jump ball, then, you know, we get, Barbara mentioned, we, we write for, you know, the general public and op-eds, and we, we get a, see a lot of comments where, you know, oh, scientists don't know this, and they don't know that, and they don't know this, and they don't know that, you know, because somebody's watched a YouTube video. So it, it doesn't help to present things as equal when they're definitely not equal in terms of their evidence and support. And I, and I think the problem is that manufactured doubt is one thing when you've got corporate interests who have a reason to do that. But journalists never intended that. Mm -hmm. They somehow got this idea that this was an appropriate way to present information. And it is not an appropriate way when the science is settled. Agreed. What are some other solutions from a harm reduction perspective to, to science denial, maybe from the perspective of, of educators? Well, educators need to do a much better job teaching, as Barbara mentioned, algorithmic literacy, digital literacy, searching strategies, how to find information, because fortunately or unfortunately, most people find their scientific information on the web. So we need to teach them how to do it in a reliable way. And then we would love to see science taught better in schools in K through 12, uh, so that People aren't surprised to see science changing, but understand that that's a strength of science. So better a better job teaching the nature of science itself and engaging students in doing science themselves, even if they're not going to be a scientist, because those thinking and reasoning and evidence-based problem-solving skills come in handy if you're an architect or if you're an artist or trying to figure out the best paint to use for your latest painting, all of those skills come in handy no matter what kind of career you're entering. So we feel you can do a much better job in K-12 education, teaching the nature of science and teaching better sourcing and searching strategies. Are you suggesting that that papi mache volcano I made in school wasn't useful in the long term? <laughs> no, I think you're, science, you're a scientist because you made yeah. that paper <laughs> volcano. That's what led you to cardiology, Chris. Exactly. <laughs> I, I want to throw in an example here. Gail and I were at a conference in Italy about 15 years ago, and we realized we were both doing exactly the same research study, and it was about student responses to Pluto being reclassified, that it was no longer a planet. Right. Yeah. And it just was fascinating to talk to young kids about this who were so emotionally invested in Pluto's <laughs> status as a planet. But one of the things that one student said in one of our interviews was, well, how would they know for sure if it was a planet or how, how do scientists make this decision or whatever? And the kids said, well, they'd have to go to Pluto and do an experiment. <laughs> because in her mind, that's the only thing that scientists did. And so what we've looked at, too, is the way in which the scientific method becomes privileged in the teaching of science. And then students are at a loss as to how in the world we know whether climate change is happening, for example because that is derived through very different scientific methods than running an experiment. Mm -hmm. 
So there are a lot of ways in which the kind of teaching that's done around science is just so low level repeatedly. And I also want to bring out what Gail was saying about the kinds of things that we need to do in terms of digital literacy, helping students find things online. We need to do it every single year in school. This isn't something we need to do to little kids and then stop. It, it needs repeat attention. I do way more of it at the college level than I ever imagined because I realized how ill-prepared my students were. They were still at a level of thinking .com is bad and .org is fine. Right. Mm. <laughs> yeah, if, if the whole Pluto thing had happened today uh, on social media, the hashtag would be Pluto has been canceled. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, Dr. Gail Sinatra, Dr. Barbara Hoffer, this has been a pleasure. Uh, your book is called Science Denial. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I think Chris did as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if people want to find you and your work online, where would they go? Well, we have a website, so you can go to that website. Um, and that's called uh, Science Denial, uh, the book. So you can find that um, quite easily. And that would be a really good place to go because we also have resources there for you. Um, some of our other podcasts. So the address is sciencedenialbook.com. So if it's a .com, it means it's a terrible website. Yeah. We, should not, we should not check it out. <laughs> not necessarily, <laughs> as we've learned. Uh, well, Dr. Hoffer, Dr. Sinatra, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And for such great questions. And that's the end of our show this month. Our theme music is Fall of the Ocean Queen by Joseph Hackel. Our illustrator is Luke Ouellette. If you want to support the show, find us on Patreon. All of our patrons get a bonus segment each month called Digressions. We are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find Chris and me on Twitter as well. Our website is bodyofevidence.ca. The Body of Evidence is not affiliated with the McGill Office for Science and Society and is a production of 1254-0851 Canada, Inc. And when trying to decide if a study is good or not, remember the Body of Evidence creed. A study in mice is not a study in people. Coincidences are easy. Proving causation is hard. Scientific studies are like movies. Some are just bad. We can't stop at a single study. We have to look at the, the body, body of, of evidence. evidence.